0: Hi everyone, I'm 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN curling analyst Cheryl Bernard. On this, the first episode of Behind the Hack, my guest is Penny Werdner, the Dean of the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary, who has served as a sports psychologist for several Olympians, including my team at the 2010 Olympic Games in Vancouver. Penny, thank you so much for joining us today. Penny is the Dean of the University's Calgary Faculty of Kinesiology, and she is also one of Canada's top consultants in sports psychology, and I have personally been very fortunate to work with Penny for many years leading up to and at the 2010 Olympics. Uh, Penny's specialty and research is done with elite athletes across Canada, and it investigates the effects of bio and neural feedback on athletic performance. So welcome, Penny, and thank you for joining me here today. Thanks, Cheryl. So I think maybe the way to start would be with just a short explanation for for people who aren't really clear about what sports psychology is and, and what it entails. So maybe you could kind of take us through
1: that. I mean, sports psychology is really about how you learn to effectively manage your thoughts and your emotions and then... You know, with that, how you effectively manage then yourself psychologically and physiologically, because, of course, our mind and our body are very well connected. And so, sports psychology is really about how we make that work. And, you know, there's a there's a group of skills, you know, sort of principal skills that any sports psychologist would use with an athlete. But from a from a psychological standpoint, but certainly because sport is about motor skills, it's about executing things on the ice or on the field or on the ski hill or on the track, uh, motor skills, physical skills, we have to be aware of both the mind and the body and how they're interconnected.
0: Now, are you surprised at the changes? I, I think I am really in the last few years, whereby we're seeing a lot more sports psychologists working with kind of high-level teams you john dunn working with kevin cooey's team adam kingsbury's working with rachel holman's team yourself you've worked with many curling teams over the years are our teams seeing results from this and what results are they gaining as compared to a time when they didn't work with sports psychologists
1: well your question about whether i'm surprised or not i guess i would say i'm pleasantly surprised i mean (laughs) i've been doing (laughs) i've been doing this work I hate to say it, maybe, but since 1984. And I think while I did work with teams then and quite effectively, I think it wasn't as as well understood and well accepted as it is now. I think historically, so I do think things have changed quite a bit over, now I'm going to say sort of the last 15 years, multiple Olympic Games and World Championships in a variety of sports. I think athletes and coaches have really come to understand and appreciate that uh, the mental side of the game, uh, and therefore using a sports psychologist, really um, is an important piece of what I call the, the puzzle of performance. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that go into, a lot of different aspects that go into performing well in high performance or highly competitive sport. And... For sure, I always say that the physical side and in in the case of curling, the technical side of how you execute and the strategy of the game are absolutely the most important pieces. I mean, if we don't have that, then what you do mentally is sort of not particularly relevant. But if we do have that, and lots of teams do, then, you know, who wins? Who beats the other team? Who succeeds? And and I really think it comes down to then – those who teams and individuals who understand themselves well know what their strengths and weaknesses are and have worked on both of those um, and know how to manage themselves psychologically,
0: which then affects the physiology side. Um, they're the ones that actually play the best. Well, and you're seeing, and, and I think we could go back even to when you and I worked together leading up to and at 2010, sports psychology coaches are not replacing the general team coaches. They're just actually another addition to the team. So you've got you know, a, a coach like we had, Dennis, who would manage, they manage the team and our schedules. We had a technical coach that we worked with at the time, Rob Craps, and we had you. So it's kind of the sum of the parts. You just keep adding things to help build your team. Yeah, and I would say in
1: curling for sure and in, in any other sport that the actual coach of the team is so important. I mean, it's the technical piece, it's the physical piece, it's the strategy piece. And I don't see many athletes at the Olympic level succeeding without that coach. And so part of what I do is, is uh, do my best to work effectively, and sometimes it's that triad of working with the coach um, and then working with the team and then myself in that mix, which is what I think is often the most effective uh, working relationship.
0: Now, I, I don't think I, – I can't really think of another team or a sport environment where stability – within a team has such a huge impact on performance, you know, and it's just such a small number of athletes, and yet every one of those athletes has a huge impact on every shot and on each player out there. So I think stability on a team is core, definitely core to the team's success. So in your opinion, how is it created? And in your past experience working with curling teams, you know, how have you created this and how have you maintained this in such a small team environment. Yeah, I mean, Cheryl, that's
1: such an important question. I mean, if I just, I mean, for, for sure, each athlete, each player needs to learn some skills and how to manage themselves. But the team dynamic in curling is so unique. Um, it's a small team, and it's a slow game. And I, I don't say that in a bad way, but it's a, it's a game when your mind can can run on and think many, many different things. And it's so it's very similar to golf in that it's a a long period of time that you're out there asking yourself to perform. And so, you know, when I first started working um, with some curling teams and, you know, back working with Ann Merklinger's team a bit uh, many, many years ago and then having many conversations with Jerry Peckham, I mean, I would sit there and probably didn't understand the game as well as I do now. But, you know, I would watch a team start to do poorly, and rather than them – come together and communicate more, they actually sort of would all separate on the ice. And I thought, isn't that an interesting and not good dynamic? Um, Because this is where you actually need to come together. And so, you know, it's a game where there's a huge opportunity for communication and strategy. I mean, I think um, one of the things I spend a lot of time doing with all athletes, but certainly with your team and you know, is planning for how you're going to play that game or facilitating you understanding and deciding how you're going to play that game. But sometimes strategy needs to change. And there's great opportunity uh, in the game to communicate, to talk, to think about what happened at that end and what you might change or not change, um, depending on what the other team is doing. And so that communication piece is so important. And so to build that piece with a team is about each individual on the team understanding who they are and what they need and want, and then how we will work together, how that force foursome will work together as a team so that we're getting the best out of everyone. And it's, uh, it's a process of doing that, right? It's, it's multiple conversations over over many games, uh, and and probably at least
0: a season or two before you sort of start to nail that well and i remember uh you know specifically our work together and and you would sit with all of us record uh, with um receivers on out on the ice and you would listen to our conversations on the ice and and notice before we ever noticed that when we got under pressure you know in high stress games that the communication did start to shut down people quit talking and just even to bring it to our um, understanding to make us recognize that this was happening, that actually just simply, you know, made us realize, okay, we, we have to address that. We know what's going to happen under stress to, for us. And I think that's the key thing to me when we worked together was that you just brought to the front and made us recognize what happened to us when we felt pressure and when we felt stress. and just that understanding made you uh, really aware of it out on the ice and try not. It didn't always, uh, you know, we, we still let it happen after that point, but it, it did make us recognize it. And slowly over time, I think we started to work better as a team.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it is a process. I mean, it's a pro- you can't change anything if you're not very consciously aware of it. So and another way to think about, the field of sports psychology is sort of one of the ways I think about the process is enabling you to be aware of what you're thinking and what you do and what those behaviors are. And then sort of second step is, because awareness is first, absolutely, but that doesn't change behavior. And then second step is, so what's working and what's not working? And you can think about that on an individual level, and then you can think about it as that foursome out on the ice with each other. And then you you make choices about what you're going to train. Just like you train physically, you can train your behaviors to be different. And then, you know, you go out and do your best to execute those, and we come back and debrief about it. That's a little bit of a different process. But it, it is that awareness that has to come first. So you make a really, I think, good point there of, of just sort of – because you can't change anything if you don't know what it is. And just to come back to the communication, I mean, most of us, for sure, the norm probably is when we're under stress, we sort of clam up and stop talking. But sometimes we might have a teammate who talks a lot when they're under stress, and that can be equally annoying and difficult and not the best behavior. So it is, I think, a piece around the team that's that's so much fun and so unique to curling is is having that, that meeting where you discuss that and, and – Decide what behaviors need to change, and sometimes they're behaviors you need to live with. But you know, if I need you, you know, when we had this discussion with your team, like if I if I have a bad shot, what what do I want anybody to say to me or not? But the job still is to fix it, and so how will I do that as one of the them out there? So it's a it's always an interesting dialogue with the team to sort of explore what's needed out there so that each of you can play your best. Because really that is what you need. A skip does not win the game. I don't know if it ever happens. You can probably answer that better than I, but I I would say not. You really need all four people playing well, certainly at a world and Olympic level.
0: Oh, you know what, I I totally agree. And I think it is managing or navigating each player's personalities and their tendencies and and understanding them. I think one of the biggest things – again, was the awareness to understand how the four of us were going to react under pressure. And then when we saw it, it wasn't such a surprise, and, and it was less – maybe it, it affected us less out on the ice, so definitely, a, you know, an advantage. One of the things that I was really interested watching this season was kind of the transformation I saw with Rachel Holman, and I can only speak of this kind of from looking at it from the outside. And it's more of a question to you, what is the process when you take an elite athlete like Rachel – and you kind of take her out of her comfort zone of who she was as a skip. So she was more introverted on the ice, very quiet, didn't really want a lot of input from the players around her. And you could see the difference this year. She was more comfortable with the input from her teammates, and she also became more vocal. She was starting to kind of give back to her team. And I think in the end that would have been, to me, the reason they won a Scotties, a Canadian championship, and they won a world championship. And so how do, you, how do you work with a player like that to take them out of their comfort zone and make them kind of do more for the betterment of the team? Well,
1: it always depends on, on the player or the athlete. And I can't speak per se for Rachel, but I think she's quite competitive. And I've worked with a number of athletes who are highly competitive. And so in this case, and I, I probably said this to you, Cheryl, I think, you know, if, if you want to win here, we've got to work as a team, and here's what that means, and here's what it might look like, and then it's a dialogue of how to create that that still fits for you as the skip, but has to fit for the team too. But part of the field of sports psychology, and I think where when I do it very well, it is about creating a working relationship with everyone so that, You know, in the beginning of that relationship, you don't push very hard. You listen lots. You You, uh, you know, see how things play out. You let, more often than not, the players take the lead and say, okay, if that's what you think works, let's see how it is. And I mean that sincerely, not not in a sarcastic way. And then it evolves. But once you, you have a relationship, a working relationship with an athlete, then you can push them at some point and challenge them for Well, do you really think that's working? And what do you think needs to happen here? Because this isn't working. We didn't win that game. We didn't win that championship. And, you know, there haven't been many Olympic Games where I haven't challenged an athlete I'm working with, where they get into that place where they're stuck, where they're scared, where they aren't sure what's going to happen. But you can really only do that once you have a, a trusting Uh, working relationship. But it it happens. So you can't do that in the first six weeks of working with a team, maybe not even in the first season. It obviously depends. But I think for those athletes who really want to win, and there's nothing wrong with talking about winning, it's just that when we're actually out there, we need to think more about execution, because that's really what focus is. How am I actually going to throw this rock? What's the strategy here? What am I trying to do? But you know to often get athletes to change behavior you got to talk about well are we here to win or are we here to just play the game and either answer is fine but you need to determine what that answer is and then you have an opportunity to really challenge.
0: Now you you often hear and we worked a lot with debriefs uh, post-game and pre-game debriefs uh, and, and events even after a game after an event and Could you take us into what a debriefing session with the team would look like? Uh, What is the focus of that session? And kind of the difference between after a game debrief, when you have to go out on the ice maybe two hours later, and after an event debrief, when you're kind of looking at the entire event as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think – debriefing or analyzing a game or preparing for a game, it is absolutely one of the most crucial processes that I think the field of sports psychology has brought to sport. You know, I think historically, teams would play, and I would say this broadly, not just in curling, but they would play and they would win or lose. And if you, if you won, that was great. And you go have a drink and everything would be super but not much thought process went into it often, or if it was, if it was it was individually done. And then when we lost, we're all depressed and sad, and then we go away um, and don't learn from both those pieces, not just the losses, but how did we win. So for me, this is a crucial part of what we do in sports psychology, so that, you know, if we just briefly go through the process we did with, With um, with you, Sherilyn and the the team, and 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 we did a very similar process in the trials, and it worked very well. And then into the Olympics is meet before the team, the alternate, if there was one, is absolutely in on that meeting, and the coach and myself. And it would be so. What's the strategy for the game? How are we going to play? Who are we playing against? Because curling is a sport where you are against another team, and. I, I would say, and Cheryl, you can correct this. More often than not, you sort of played to your strengths, but a few times you change strategy depending on the team. But for the most part, it was here's what we're going to do. And I, I would often the way that that I usually try to set it up, or I do try to set it up with a coach, is that the in this case because athletes playing in curling are more often than not mature. They've been around. They know the game. They talk first, and then the coach would add things in, and then it's like you have a plan um, for going out to play that team. Um, And then I think that's quite important, equally important, then is after the game, um, coming back as a group and, again, debriefing. So what happened out there and always letting the players speak first because I think it's so informative for a coach to hear what the athletes, the players think happened out there and more often than not, they're accurate and correct, but sometimes they're not. And sometimes they forget an end, maybe sometimes because it was not a good end and you don't <laughs> want to talk about it. And then it, then the coach gets to weigh in, so it's not the coach doesn't, but he or she will hear what the players are actually thinking. It's so useful. And then, you know, I, would, I see my job in, in, in that area of facilitating that, making sure it happens. And so, for instance, Cheryl, as you recall, in the Olympic Games, we always waited. You were always the last one with the media, and we always waited to do that with until you got back. And And I know historically over numerous Olympics, a number of Olympics ago, where we would have team meetings, and that could be bigger teams that could have been curling, that could have been a different sport where we would – you know, groups would get together and talk, but then the learning is not ingrained in the whole team. So it was really important that everybody's there to sort of hear the same conversation at the same time. And then what is our learning out of that? What do we take out of that? And we absolutely have to do it when it's a good game. Why was it terrific? How is it so great? What is it we did? Well, then that's what we want to do next time. And. If it wasn't, okay, what are the things we need to fix? But what are the things we also did well? You know, the timing of that depends on when you, in curling, when you have a next game, you might not be able to debrief in a normal spiel until the end of the day. or
0: So you have to figure out the timing of that. But it is so important. Are you careful when you have come, it's back-to-back games, so you're coming off a game, you have maybe an hour and a half to, uh, debrief, get hydrated, get some food in you, and get back out in the ice and say it's a loss. Is Does it look differently than if it was a win? How how deep of a debrief do you do when you have to go back on and perform in an hour and a half?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question because timing is so crucial here. So I would still say you want to do it, but you keep it. I mean, you make sure people are eating and drinking so they're they're getting hydrated. But you make it shorter, especially if it was, you know, you pull out a couple of things. So I wouldn't let it go on very long because the, so, you know, it might be a 15-minute piece, and the coach might lead it a bit more so there's a bit more direction. I mean, again, it depends on the team and how you set that process up, but I I would still do it. And if, let's just say it was really short and it was an hour, then I might say, really coach-led and said, okay, tell me two things out there you think you guys did well, two things we need to think about for the next game. Okay, now go get something to eat and and relax because there's another key piece in here because one of the reasons I really like and promote a process like this is it's then, okay, you know what, now we're done after this, depending on the time frame we have, and now it's your time to... Go be with family or lie down and put your feet up or have something you need and talk about other things because that is recovery, physiologically and certainly mentally. Because if you spend all your time, let's just say it's a game back-to-back with two hours and you spend those two hours not recovering and thinking about all the things you need to fix, you have no psychological energy going into that game. Or most of us won't. I mean, it's impossible to say categorically for everyone, but I don't know many people that could do that. So this recovery in curling is so important um, because of the multiple games that you play and how you want to be your best at the end, not just in the middle and the beginning.
0: No, and I think one of the best things, honestly, that I got from working with you, uh, you know, and there was numerous, was understanding that you needed to actually analyze the wins as well. Uh, you know, as you said, it's so easy to walk away from a win and say, yeah, but you didn't do everything 100% in that game. And, and you also need to recognize the things that you did very well. Um, that's what builds teams also. Now you specialize in the study and the effect of bio and neural feedback on athletic performance, and this you'll be able to under- explain this better than me. But I, my understanding, when we worked together, was this is to assess and train athletes to control their stress and their attention in high stress situations. And I I was fortunate enough to have access uh, under you uh, with this testing and. It was a light bulb moment for me, uh, realizing just uh, focus was a big, huge indicator to me—broad uh, and narrow focus—and also stress and relaxation and deep breathing and how that can affect your performance. So, can you maybe go through the bio and the neural feedback that you do and how it's benefiting the athletes that that you have worked with and the ones that you are still working with?
1: Yeah, it, it's such a great tool, and I was just—I was really fortunate to get. Um, research funding from on the podium but after Torino before in 2006 and then leading up to Vancouver in 2010 and then um, working with you on it as well. Uh, it's, um, you know, be, because sports psychology or psychology is all about the mind and we can't really see the mind, you know, lots of times uh, my experience leading up prior to that time was that You know, I would work really effectively with a large group of athletes, and within a season or two they would actually learn how to change their behaviors and their performance would get better. And, you know, sometimes there isn't a fit uh, with an athlete, and they go work with someone else. And then there were athletes I worked with, and we had a great working relationship, but they continued to underperform when the pressure was on. And so what biofeedback and neurofeedback allows someone like myself to do is, you're sitting in a lab and you're hooked up to various modalities, which I'll explain in two sets, and you actually see how you're changing, both neurologically and physiologically. So it, it's a it's a feedback tool. And what became really clear to me, because for sure when I started, I thought that EEG, the neurology side of that, would be the most important part of it because it's about focus. It's about attention. It's about what we want to pay attention to and how we recover from paying attention to something and and rest our, our mind and brain a bit and it became pretty clear in that training that the physiology was also important because if we are too aroused physiologically too activated physiologically or too anxious which really means anxiety is negative anxiety is about being nervous it's about can I do this what if this team's better what if I don't make it what if I don't you know win that Olympic medal that I've trained so hard for they both, really affect what we think. And so it's managing both of those. So biofeedback is is around the physiology side. So there's essentially five modalities, respiration or breath control, um, heart rate and heart rate variability, muscle, and then skin conductance or electrodermal activity, and then peripheral body temperature. So briefly, and there's very solid research uh, behind this, when heart rate variability, when we breathe at about six breaths per minute, we are turning down the sympathetic nervous system, and it's the one that is keeps us on high alert. And it's an important part of our nervous system, but the parasympathetic is the one that sort of tells us everything's okay. So we want those in nice, and I think balance is the best word here because we need both of them. And so we measure that and we actually teach players and athletes how to do that really effectively and then you use that both especially in a game like curling or a game like golf where it goes on for two to two and a half or three hours you know how you're recovering between ends like you can actually use it within the game and then how do you use it between games and then you know between fields etc so it's a it's a key piece and it is the key piece that manages everything physiologically and then When we're stressed, many of us, you know, get tight in the shoulders. So EMG helps athletes understand their shoulder tension or sometimes on their jaw tension and just gets them to start to understand how to manage that better and recognize it. And then peripheral body temperature is the one, it's a number we want to see go up because we're measuring blood flow to the hands and to the feet because that's how we measure it. So when we're stressed, it all goes to our heart, so we would see our hands get cold. So we want that blood flowing. And then electrodermal activity is a tough one; it's it's um, to understand and to regulate. But it's about managing sort of internal emotions. It's measured on the fingers because when we're anxious or over aroused, we sweat more, our pores open, and that's how it measures it. So it's a fantastic tool and a very effective tool for for allowing athletes to understand how they manage anxiety and stress and then how they
0: can actually learn how to control it. So it's a training tool, which is the best part of it. And I think for me, sorry to interrupt, Penny, I think for me as an athlete and as a person that needs to see proof in front of me, I could see it. I could see that when I reduced my anxiety that I could actually perform the task under pressure and it was right in front of my eyes rather than somebody just saying so so it was huge for I think certain people who need to see that uh you know right in front of them
1: yeah and that's the value in it um you actually get the feedback and you actually see in some cases how poor you are at it but the good news is it's a training tool I mean I haven't seen an athlete not get better at it so we are absolutely capable of of changing and managing effectively our nervous system. It's just we don't know often. Or if we know, we sort of know we have a level of awareness, but we don't do anything about it. So this is, it's a, it's a good tool. And and then neurologically, the neurofeedback is equally valuable in that it really uh, enables you to learn how to singularly focus on something. Because we, we change up where we put the electrode on your, on your scalp. And so we're really teaching you from a brainwave activity standpoint how to be very singularly focused and what that internal state feels like for you because each of us feel it differently and feel it, I don't mean emotions, but as an internal state. And then how we recover from it because, you know, you can't well, you should never say can't, but I don't, I don't know anybody that could focus, like totally be on target for a two-and-a-half or two-hour curling game. So it's like you want to be focused going into the hack. You want to be focused when you're sweeping. You want to be focused when you're thinking strategy. But then when during the game are you actually recovering? Because it's a long game, and I don't think you get – if you get to the end of one game – incredibly focused, then you'll have a tough time the next one. So it's how we come in and out of that. And, again, it's visual feedback that the individual, the player, the athlete gets that sort of builds on, oh, that's, that's what it's like. Okay, ooh, I know what that feels like for me then. And then we obviously work on transferring that to the real world of whatever sport that is because, you know, in the end, I don't really care if you can do it well in the lab if you can't do it well. When you're actually out on the ice. So it's always about how, how would that transfer. So we're always going back and forth on, you know, sort of checking in on, so how'd, you, how'd that do, what'd you do, and then we come back and do more work in the lab.
0: Now, you and I had this, I will say it was a debate <laughs> or an argument or however yep. we could say it yep. many times about that exact thing, the focus, because I always felt that as a skip, and I would just narrow it down to the skip, that you had to be focused for two and a half hours all the time because you didn't. Even when you weren't focused narrowly to make a shot or calling line, then you had to be focused on thinking two or three shots ahead. You had to be focused on reading their opposition. You had to focus on the throws they were making. And I said to you, skips can never take a break. And it was a great realization when when I finally listened to I think it took a little while that I needed to let my mind have a break now and then and, and that it was okay to kind of drift off a little bit now and then and to take a holiday from all that intense thinking. But it took a long time for you to convince me of uh, how valid that was. Yeah, and I think that's, I
1: mean, there's a couple of comments I would make on that for sure. That's that's for sure. I mean, after we started this work and I, I just knew you weren't happy, and so I called you up and you said, well, I'm a skip. you know, I have to be thinking all the time. And I think that's where I always say this is where, you know, I don't, For me, it's about then working with you. And I think that's why I've been effective. So I said, okay, let's talk about how you can use it. And it was that bringing you to the realization of, well, when will you take a break? And then you get to decide, Cheryl, like it wasn't me saying, here's where you should take the breaks. I mean, you're the one out there playing and playing very well. So my piece is to say, you know, you need to figure out when you will recover, but that is your choice because you won't get through 10 games without some recovery built in there somewhere but for sure the skip has a much more lengthy focused role because you are thinking strategy all the time and and that's what's necessary in the game so then you know are there times in the game that you can let it go for a minute or do you really think you know sort of need to be close to that state because things are happening all the time and that was really for you to figure out, and then, you know, then, then what I pushed a bit harder on was recovery between games then. But it, but it is an interesting, I mean, that's the process, and it is. It is the part I love about working with athletes and players and coaches is it's figuring out what's going to work for them, given the principles and the skills and the tools we have in the field, but then how it's going to work for you, because how it works for you is different from someone
0: else. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're now, what, seven months away from the Canadian curling trials to, to name our Team Canada. And um, yourself being an Olympic athlete and a sports uh, psychologist, you probably understand this more than anyone, that this opportunity only comes every four years and it's been on all of these team mind, teams' minds for all of that time. So how, in your opinion, can these teams leading up to the pre-trials and trials manage the pressure that comes with this once-every-four-year opportunity? And just to add to that, have you seen any issues with teams curling or otherwise leading up to Olympic trials, overtraining, overthinking, exhaustion? Is there any keys that you can maybe help some of these pre-Olympic and, and trials teams manage this pressure that you know comes when it's a huge event that they only get an opportunity to try for once-every-four-years?
1: Yeah, and it's such an important question because Olympic year is, for anyone who thinks they have a chance to be the Olympic team, it's such a stressful year because it's what you want. And when we want things and we're working towards them, that stress is idling in there. And what that is is that sympathetic nervous system being on, this is important, i got to do this, i got to do more. So for sure sometimes we see teams overtrain. but. For sure what we see is just too much time spent thinking about it and what I have to do and what about this and what about that, and that is exhausting. And often what happens, teams then get to trials, and while they don't usually know it until they're about halfway through, they're already sort of toast, right? They're already exhausted. So the real objective in Olympic year is how you train well, hard, and smart. And in the game of curling, that's, you know, throwing rocks and thinking about strategy. But how you compartmentalize that and you do that for whatever that is, two or three hours a day, and the rest of the day needs to be about recovery. And for sure, athletes and players now are getting massage and doing cold baths and seeing osteopaths and all sorts of good physiological recovery, which they absolutely should be doing. But you've also got to turn your mind, your brain, your thinking processes down and make sure you're doing enjoyable things. Make sure you're spending time with your family. Make sure you're doing something else in your life that's not just about curling because then that is recovery. Because our brain is thinking we have thoughts all the time. And so if we're spending all our time or a considerable amount of time thinking, thinking, thinking about what I have to do, and, and especially if I say I have to, I must, I should, I need to, then, you know, that, I mean, just saying those words makes me tighter. Like, I can feel my shoulders. I can feel my breath getting faster. And, and so it's like, yeah, I need to do that. Yes, this is what I want to do. But I'm going to train for two hours. And then, or, you know, whatever that might be, or I'm going to train for an hour now. And then two hours later in the afternoon, and you, we compartmentalize physical training we have to compartmentalize when we think about curling and when we visualize how we want to play we just cannot do not want to let our minds run on all the time and that is absolutely what happens to so many athletes in Olympic year. I mean probably to some extent on a regular basis, but for sure Olympic year is the is the most stressful year for anyone who thinks they can make that team, be that team.
0: Well, and I remember, uh, I distinctly remember the conversation you had with all of us because we were getting anxious leading up to those trials. And and I think it really rounds back down to being about perspective. And you said, really, what's the worst that could happen during those trials? And, of course, we all lost it and said, well, we could lose. We might not win it. And you kind of brought it back to, well, if you don't win it, then how bad is that? And, you know, once you kind of, I think, uh, what I got from that conversation is once you recognize that life would go on, you'd be very disappointed, but you know what, we would still have our families and our jobs and our life. And once we kind of addressed that, then it wasn't this kind of elephant in the room anymore. And I remember that perspective just, I think, allowed us to play and not play tight and not playing, trying to win. We just played to play the game.
1: Yeah, and that word is so crucial perspective. And I think. You know, with with most athletes, and your team included, that, you know, had a chance to win an Olympic medal going into an Olympic Games and had the pressure on to win an Olympic medal, it is understanding that it's not that easy to win one of those medals. It's not that easy to be one of the teams, one of the athletes, depending on other sports, going to an Olympic Games. Like, it is. It's not that easy. And lots of talented people get left behind. So... It is that incredibly difficult combination of sort of accepting it might not happen and then still putting that fantastic effort and mindset into, I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen because, you know, I believe it's possible. But it's that acceptance and because the ones that go in and, uh, to Olympic Games and say, this is it, or into Olympic trials, and, this is it, this is all I got, I got to do this. They don't usually come out the other end. And just to explain why, because that, those kinds of thinking, those kinds of thoughts make us physiologically tight. We breathe faster, we have more muscle tension, and you can't execute the motor skills that you have learned to execute as well. And, you know, it's inches that make a difference. Yeah. So it's, it's how we can go in physiologically calm the right activation level but pretty calm so we we
0: allow our body to do what you have trained and trained and trained to do it was a great discussion to have but you still had to then really believe it. you really had to think about it and understand and and kind of say what is the worst that can happen and i'm sure our entire team repeated that many times during those trials and and during the olympics so you know it was a key for us now, one of, one of the things that we talk about a lot are distractions, and there we talked about external distractions, which is the you know the media, public expectations, social media these days, and then you talk about internal distractions, which is you know your own self doubt or negative thinking. And when I think of that and those distractions, I looked at Team GuShu this year at the Briar under I think the most intense pressure with so many distractions playing at home in their 14th briar they had never won one before they're playing in newfoundland with the entire entire province (laughs) wanting them to, to win and they started off three and two and then they had this great conversation that none of us were privy to and all of a sudden they turned it around and it would be interesting to hear how you would have approached if you were working with that team their three and two start with all that pressure.
1: Yeah, and those things happen, and, and they happened for Brad. I mean, I think – I mean, I don't know what happened in that room. I know what I would be doing, which would be aptly taking the pressure off and coming back to how many good shots can we execute in the next game. And it this is the difficulty and, it, you know, the pressure from Newfoundland, the pressure from the media – That's all, as you said, external, and it's all around outcome. It's all around winning. And, of course, it is, the game is about winning. It is about beating those other teams and winning. But what actually happens then when we're out on the ice is then we get focused on that which is ahead of us as opposed to shot by shot by shot. And. You know, it is a cliche, it, it does seem trivialized now, but, I mean, that essentially is what focus is. You could go play your best game ever and still be beaten um, because somebody played better, and that's part of that acceptance piece that we just talked about. But if if I was in the room, I'd say, okay, not a great start. I, I would still go through the debriefs. Let's talk about those games. Let's talk about those first five games and what was different in the three versus the two. And and what's going on, and what are you thinking, and what do you want to do about that? And I think just because what I do is pose a lot of questions, because questions allow a player to understand they actually have a choice in right. what they think and what they do out there. And, you know, on some level, at that level of sport, you know, Gucci's team knows they're talented. I mean, they have a level of confidence is absolutely there. And they just lost something. So I would say, what do you want to do about this? Like, what is our plan? How do we want to change this? And sometimes they say, do we want to change this? I mean, it's such a, and the answer is always going to be yes, of course, but then it helps them understand they actually have a choice. And then they sort of step up. The mindset changes, the body language changes, and you become that tougher team again, that, and that more focused team on what are we going to do to play well out there? Rather than, holy crap, we're down three. You know, like, are we going to be able? Because that's all forward thinking, and that's not then focused when you're out on the ice. So we talk about it off the ice. What you need
0: to then bring to the ice is right here, right now. What are we? What are we doing? Well, it's and it, and you know, for me to watch it, um, <clears throat> you know, from the outside uh, to see it, it was suddenly that you could see them really. You know, when all else is equal, the technical and and the talent, where they really shone was their mental, their ability to then suddenly relax and engage with the crowd. And it was was a transformation that was pretty amazing to see under quite intense pressure. So we should ask them and find out what they did do. (laughs) I I am planning to, so that will be the next one. One of the struggles I think that players have is missed shots or, or big gains, big losses, and... And curling is a tough one because you have a lot of time to dwell on a, on your last missed shot. You've got a lot of time to think. I, I always relate it to golf where you're walking from, you know, the tee box to the next tee box. That's the worst time, and you're, walk, you're thinking, and that's when you can really do some damage. And I think curling is similar where you've just had a miss. You've got time to think until you throw, and it's almost 20 minutes later how do athletes deal with these misses, I guess, in the middle of a game? And then also the big game losses and not, a, not let that affect their confidence. And, and how do they choose to learn from these experiences rather than let them, you know, bring them down?
1: Yeah, well, tough lessons, but these, this, is, this is an absolutely crucial skill in a game that's lengthy against other people or against the ball if we're thinking of golf. But it is a skill, and it is – I think you have to feel whatever emotion you feel about disappointment, pissed off, angry, frustrated, frustrated at oneself or frustrated at a teammate. And that's where coming back to the, the debrief or the analytical process is when you have time, you get that out on the table. And so if there's anger or frustration, you get it out. And then we say, okay, now what do we want to do about it? So, So letting go of that, and then moving to something else. Because we actually can't just let go of it, I don't think, many of us. If you've got to put something else in place, so then what's our plan for the next game? So if we think about it in the microcosm of within a game, it's like having, having a process that works for you within the game. So if I have a bad shot, analyze it, talk to a teammate, and that's, again, where communi- if, if that's what I want to do, I, I have a choice. I can solve it myself or I can solve it with, one of my teammates, and then it's like, okay, so what am I going to do next? And that is also where we can use breathing, so it's sort of like, okay, that wasn't good. How am I going to change it? Because that is the objective, not to shots poorly, right? You will always make poor shots. The objective is to make less of them than the other team. but. It's how do we fix it the second time you get into the hack? And that's also where I would push players to say that's your responsibility. I mean, ideally, we don't want to have a poor shot, but if you have one, two is not, not acceptable. So how do you change that? So I think you get help or you do it yourself. You analyze, and then you take some breath, and then you go, so now what do I want to do? And you come back to some cue that works for you in how to fix that. And then it's like, then almost, you also have to then take a break from that thinking because that's where you could get into over analysis. But for sure, easy sitting here, talking about that, not so easy to do out on the ice, but that is the skill. That is the skill. And if we go back to Gush's team, clearly whatever they discussed in that meeting, they were able to turn it around, and that's very
0: impressive yeah it, you know and to watch it was it was pretty incredible and you talk about mental toughness being a skill and it, and it and that's what I think I finally understood that this was something you had to work at it's not something it's not an inherited trait you have to work at mental toughness and and when you see athletes that rise to the occasion and they play 15 or 20 percent better under pressure they, I think the key to them is they weren't thinking about their performance they were actually immersed in what they were doing and you know different uh, sports psychologists call it zone or they call it the flow state is there any way um, and I know it's a tough place to get to is there any key things to give yourself the best advantage to get into that state in the middle of a you know high pressure game you know that's the flow state
1: and I'm, I'm convinced that we can't manufacture it what we want to do is get close to it and we do that by having some processes in place, so some repetitive things that help us manage ourselves, but at the same time within the sport of curling, you have time to analyze, breathe, and then decide what you're going to change, or analyze, decide what you're going to change, breathe, and then plan for the next shot. And it, it's that process, not done in an anxious way, done in a can't believe that was such a crappy shot, feel that emotion, and then say, but will that help me? No, okay, so then breathe and come back to the next shot. And the more that one practices that skill, the more one gets better at it. And then sometimes what happens is you have one of those great games where, you know, you're just incredible and everything goes your way. But to create that, to think about creating that, that's also been about forward thinking. And so I don't spend time doing that because – you know, most athletes that I've worked with in Olympic games that have won a medal, you know, they could tell me a couple of times where they lost focus. They could tell me what was not perfect about it, and yet they still won Olympic medal and performed incredibly well under that immense stress of an Olympic games or a World Championships or a qualifier for Olympic games. So, I don't spend a lot of energy trying to help athletes create flow because I think there's some things that we just still, and I don't know if we ever will, maybe we will understand what that is and how we could actually manufacture it.
0: I I think, and, you know, even further to that, I think the toughest thing in sports is trying not to, in my opinion, think of the outcome. It's it's in front of us. They put the score on the board. The fans cheer. Outcome is kind of in our face, and yet everybody tells us not to think of outcome, just think about the process. And so what do you think is a key to maybe allowing you to do that? Is it your pre-shot routine? Is it uh, thought substitution? What, what stops you, because it is so difficult not to think of outcome, what stops you from that and, and gets you back to just focusing on the task at hand? Well, first is recognizing that it's out there.
1: So in curling, you do see that scoreboard. There's no way you're not going to see it. So it's understanding you are actually going to see that and then it's probably a distraction that can give you some information, so it's probably not totally negative, but in the end, if that's what you're thinking about, I've got to make this shot because we're down two, that almost inevitably then makes you tighter and diminishes your chance of being able to throw a good rock. So it's, it's recognizing and accepting it. I see that. Yeah, that's where we're at. That sucks. Or whoa, we're really up. We're going to win this game. I mean, our brain mind goes in a lot of different places, and then saying, okay, cool. So now, what what do I need? What do I want to do? That's going to help me as soon as I get in the hack here. And so it's always bringing ourselves back. To, to that, and I, I, I know that's repetitive, and sometimes on those days where you, you actually don't have to actively do it, it's just happening, those are great games, and sometimes it is that sort of optimal functioning, and you're in that zone, but I think it's pretty rare. So it is a process, and, you know, <laughs> at this level of the sport, winning consistently is not as easy as, as we think it is. And so, you know, it's work out there doing that, bringing your, recognizing,
0: accepting, and bringing yourself back each time, each end, each throw. I guess final question, Penny. If, if you were working with uh, one of these teams that's focused on the Olympic trials or the pretrials coming up, what would you, what specifics would you have them working on during the summer kind of with regards to their mental training? And then how do you, just a brief thought on peaking and periodization, you know, you can't always play at your best weekend after weekend. So leading up to those trials, I, I remember we took a couple weeks off before the, the trials. That was kind of at the advice of you to so that we came out there excited and ready to play. But I guess just in this period now, leading up to those trials, what would you have teams kind of – what would their season look like up until then? Well, you know, a hard question in the sense of
1: every team's a little bit different, but in general – I would have them probably not doing very much mental training work right now. I would have them being fit, getting fit. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not for me to say when the best time to be throwing rocks or not throwing rocks, but I, I would definitely, like recovery is a huge piece of getting to the Olympic trials in, in a really healthy state. So I would see the summer as being a pretty big recovery time and, and staying fit because I think fitness, you know, being really strong and and fit is an important piece now to get through 10 and 12 games. So I'm for sure I'd be doing that, but I wouldn't be spending too much time on the mental side unless, well, certainly not for teams going to the Olympic Games or going to the Olympic trials. And then, you know, then I might be, I'd probably be having a meeting with them sometime, with a team sometime in August, so they're getting together to talk about you know, sort of the logistics, getting organized, meeting with the coach, you're getting organized for the season and that's when I would then start reintroducing or getting them to to start working again on the mental side. They could be visualizing shots, they could be doing their respiration breathing, so they're they're honing that skill again. And then putting going forward in that process game by game by game of making a plan, analyzing it after the fact and doing the work around during the week around you know having specific goals for how you want to play and evaluating those visualizing things doing that that breathing but for sure right now I'd be having them um, other than staying really fit in a recovery mode
0: yeah and I think you know what that's the keyword that you said that I I remember for us was you know we were we were over trying we were overdoing everything and we needed a break so that because it became just a grind, and we needed a break, so that we were excited to go out and throw rocks and be into it because these seasons are long, and I think recovery is probably not instinctual for most competitive athletes. they just want to try harder, do more. Uh, we did that, and so I think recovery is probably the key message to anybody out there preparing for those trials
1: yeah it's a, it's a really important piece and it's an important piece through the season as well, so and we need to think about periodizing you know, the mental or the psychological training as well. So definitely the summer months is where I wouldn't be doing too much, not in an experienced team anyways, in a young team, you know, that's just starting out, but they wouldn't, you know, probably be going to Olympic trials. Or if you haven't done anything, then you might be doing some work. It would depend on what stage of their
0: competitive career they're at. That's awesome. Thanks, Penny. That does it for the very first episode of Behind the Hack. My thanks to Penny Werner for joining me and thanks to you for listening. Join me during the 2017-18 curling season as I explore the psychology of curling with some of the sport's greatest minds and champions.